WTN University, Masters in Divinities, the Life of Muhammad, the Sirah. You know, the reason we do this university course, and it's a first, by the way, we've had two courses going on at the same time because we haven't finished the advancing church without it, there can be no political freedom, our fall semester with Kevin Cookagee. Uh, but we began this series. There is a false notion. Muslims will tell you, you can't discuss Islam and you can't discuss Muhammad. We saw that at our town hall meeting, right? Paul Galloway gets on every news channel. By the way, I guess all we have to do now is start going to all these Muslim events and just stand there, and we'll get to be in all the coverage of these things to refute and discredit. You mean they'll <laughs> Turn your mic on. Oh, there's that. <laughs> you mean so I can go and I can be the Kaffir Paul Galloway? Exactly. And you can refute everything they say. But do you really think the media would let me speak at a Muslim no, event? No, it just no, shows the not. ignorance and bias of Channel 245. But anyway, uh, the point I was making is that Muslims will tell you all the time, you can't discuss Muhammad and you can't discuss Islam. It's forbidden. Not in America. Not in a constitutional republic. Not where we do believe in critical thinking and not where we do believe in freedom of speech and freedom of religion. And you do not have to be a Muslim to understand Islam. That is a lie. I don't have to be a Jehovah Witness to understand what Jehovah Witnesses believe. I don't have to be a Mormon to understand what they believe or a Catholic to understand what they believe. You can study these things. Now, one of the things in the premise of this course is we don't believe you can understand the Quran until you understand the life of Muhammad. And so we're starting with the life of Muhammad, the Surah. And we're going to give you the education they say is forbidden. By the way, and as you learn and as you know, Everything you're seeing will make great sense. You'll have that peace of mind. The other thing that'll start making sense is you'll notice that they never refute what you say. You see, Paul Galloway and anybody else can't come on here and say Muhammad didn't rape when they know he did. He didn't steal when they know he did. He didn't kill and slaughter when they know he did. They'll just say, you're forbidden to say it. And you're not a Muslim, therefore, you have no credibility. You don't have a degree in history and theology, even though he doesn't have a degree in history and theology, but he's a messenger. Marketing messaging is his background and a former director of the Council on American Islamic Relations in Houston. They'll never refute any of that. They really believe you're forbidden because by Sharia law you are to speak his name and comment and understand. That's not how it works in America. That's not how it works during this university. So without further ado, WTN University, Masters in Divinities, The Life of Muhammad, the Sirah, with your professor and headmaster, Dr. Bill Warner. Give him a quick review, by the way, of, of our overview uh, last week. Well, last week we went over the fact that, first off, there is such a thing as a biography of Muhammad. But we need to establish that. And that this is not a biography, but it's a sacred text. Because there are, let's see, over 91 verses in the Quran which say that Muhammad is the perfect, ideal human being that everyone in the world, including you and me, is supposed to pattern our life after. So we established that. The other thing we established is the meaning of a word. Well, I guess we had two words. One is the Sirah, S-I-R-A, the 
uh, biography of Muhammad. And the other is the word kafir. Uh, I've already given you that one of my life plans is before I die that the word kafir will be understood in common conversation because you cannot understand Islam until you understand what a kafir is. And that even includes Muslims because they all know what one is. By the way, I love to We also covered the trilogy, Quran, Sirah, and Hadith. I always like to use it when I'm in a meeting in which there are Muslims there. I always identify myself as a kafir because it's their secret dirty word. Mm, Okay. They don't use it in public. So we've we've covered that. I'm a son of a kafir. Uh, well, actually, I am too. too. I think about it. <laughs> so we see that uh, the trilogy, Quran, Sirah, Hadith, if you're going to learn Islam, do not start with reading the Quran. You will simply be confused. Instead, you read the life of Muhammad. And once you know that, the Quran becomes clear. Now, it is interesting that Muslims say, oh, well, no, you can't understand Islam, which also says you cannot understand the biography of a man. And that's what we're dealing with here, mm-hmm. the biography of a man. So you can understand a biography because we all are human beings and Muhammad was a human being. So we can understand him. So that's kind of the background. Oh, and one other thing. Uh, kafirs are uh, an enemy. I mean, kafirs are to be mocked. They're to be headed. They're to be plotted against. They're to be terrorized. They're not to be made a friend with, and they are to be cursed. Uh, but we also talk about the distinction between a kafir, which would be all of us non-believers, as well as the children of the book. Now, the children of the book, if uh, – see, children of the book is a wonderful word. And Muslims like to use that when they deal with Christians and Jews is, oh, you're people of the book. We're pe- we have a book too, so we're also people of the book. But the problem is, is that a Christian is not a person of the book until they agree with Islam that Jesus was a prophet. He was not the son of God. He was not the Trinity. He did not die. He was not resurrected. So as long as you believe in the same Jesus of the Quran, then you're a person of the book. Otherwise, it's back to Kafir. And I don't want to get into apologetics, um, but I mean, I just had a long exchange with a, with a kook that keeps emailing me. On, uh, do we have the same God? And, you know, you try to explain to them the inconsistent if – you, if you've studied the Old Testament, if you've studied the New Testament, if you've studied the Quran, and you actually have learned some things and you understand that there are nature differences. Now, I will tell you historically, Muhammad was very smart as an illiterate, as a storyteller to incorporate the Old Testament, Judaism, and Christianity with his new creation, just as I today – could create a religion that someday will be discussed 1,400 years from now, and I may decide that sex with strangers is the way to salvation, and you should kill anybody that resists. All right, well, you could say that, yes, we are all monotheistic. We have that in common. You could, but you, and you could say that I claim to be the same God the Father, but if the God of the Old Testament is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he becomes either schizophrenic or changed, all right? So he would not have a path. Now, you can reject Christ as a Jew or a Muslim, but it doesn't become the same nature of the God. There are consistencies in the nature of God, the desire to have an individual relationship and fellowship with you, uh, the way for atonement and sin and blood. Now, if you reject Christ once and for all blood, you're still killing animals, but there's still that consistency of a blood covering. There's also the fulfillment of Scripture's that have happened that point to the same God. But in Islam, it's different. Suddenly, God the Father is not desirous to have a one-on-one relationship with you and incapable of having a one-on-one relationship with you. It's suddenly not his will that all be saved. It's suddenly his great desire and pleasure to punish, even lets them grow skin so they can keep feeling pain. So when the nature changes, I mean, you can say, they're the same God. 
No, you can say they claim to be ultimately the same God, but they don't have the same nature, and the ultimate decision is made by the believer himself. And there are reasons for me to reject that Islam has the same God, the Father, as Judaism and Christianity. But I will acknowledge, yes, they're all monotheistic. They all claim to have the same Heavenly Father. That doesn't make it so. And we're not going to have a DNA test to solve it. Now, by the way, when you say things like this to the nut I'm dealing with on email, that's never enough. It's an undocumented claim. And This guy, of course, has a grudge against Christians, and he's an atheist, and he hates all religions and blames all religions. I mean, I get what his grudge is. Um, but the natures make a difference. So one of the things by the time this course is over and we get on to other semesters, you're going to see the difference in Allah as portrayed through revelation in the life of Muhammad and Abba, Yahweh, as revealed through Christ. So, uh, And we got into some of that in the overview as well. But go ahead. All right, so now we're to in the beginning. That's always a great place to start. In the beginning. By the way, I, in general, encourage people not to discuss God and Allah, but instead to discuss Muhammad, Muhammad and, and Jesus. Jesus. I do too, but... And so, because but that wasn't the question, he was he emailed me first over. Did I hear right in that promo? You don't think Islam and Christianity have the same God? Can I chime in and say no? Well, I did, and the, <laughs> but, but the email was originally. Did I hear right? Yes, you did. Do you really believe that? Yes, I do. Why? I gave him that answer. He didn't agree with the answer. So now, seventy-two emails later, he feels like he can harass me, and I'm not going to turn him over to the police because I'm gonna. <laughs> but go ahead. Anyway, back to the Muhammad. Uh, in the, the way, beginning. In the beginning. We have to understand that Muhammad did not create Islam out of thin air. That is, the more you know about his environments and the religions around him, the more you see that the Quran and Muhammad's view of a God is put together like my grandmother used to do piecework quilts. She had two kinds of quilts she made. One were patterns, and the other were just literally made of scraps all sure. stitched together. So the Quran is a piecework quilt, but we'll work into that later. So... Let's Clever, start. by the way. Oh. Very. I mean, you know, one of the things Bill and I, I want to say, I don't want to interrupt any more after this. But one of the things <laughs> we often talk about is how brilliant Muhammad was, especially oh. for a man that was illiterate. And, and by the way, is it not odd that although Galloway wanted a Muslim to be in the room, the, the only person who spends more time talking about Allah and Muhammad in this town is an imam than me. <laughs> I mean, I talk about it all the time. And we're talking about it now. So anyway, by the way, a little cl- little advance here, a little preview over 75% of the Sirah is about jihad. This is a great story. If you like American movies with sex and violence, we got it. We got it. it. Can't we got make it this up. We, we can't make this up. All right, so it's a patchwork theology. Right. But let's start with the fact that Muhammad's father was named Abdullah, which means slave of Allah, which is interesting within itself. Now, the reason is, is that in the town of Mecca, there was a god worship called Allah, and he was the high god. He was not the god of the universe. He was just one of the many gods. There were 360 gods in the Kaaba, which was a temple-like structure in Mecca. And so his father was a worshiper of Allah. That's, that's what his name tells us. One of how many? 360. 360, okay. Almost one for every day of the week. Almost. The I've wondered about that. Anyway, Muhammad was an orphan three times over. His father died when his mother was pregnant. And then when he was five years old, his mother died, and his grandfather took over his upbringing. Sounds then, like Obama, but go ahead. Uh, anyway, well, then Muhammad was orphaned for a third time when his grandfather died, and his raising was assumed by his uncle Abu Talib. So here we see something of the closeness of the uh, Arabs in the, that part of the world in which Muhammad was not left alone as an orphan, but he was carried from one relative to the other. So 
His father dies. In when Muhammad was grown, now he. Oh, by the way, we're skipping over some things here, which are very short. But he was a shepherd. That was one of the ways he earned money, and was a man of good repute. But he came to the attention of a woman by the name of Khadija, and Khadija hired him to be a caravan leader, and he was quite good at it. He was his agent in trading in Syria. And by the way, it's this point right here alone that makes me think that I do not believe that Muhammad was an illiterate. A person does not do long-distance trading without any ability, in my opinion, to do you – need, you need records. You need records of names. You need records – I mean, where, what did you buy? What did you pay for it? So I rather doubt that he was illiterate, in, at least to some degree I think he probably had to read in order to do business. Now, in the mythology of his life, on one of these trips, he was introduced to a Christian – and he was supposedly told that he would become a man of power. Uh, I'm not sure about this because there's some other miracles that are related in this story. But anyway, on his first, on one of these trips, he doubled Khadija's money, <clears throat> which is a good thing because you're in business. And she proposed marriage to him. Now she was an older woman, <clears throat> and uh, which this was unusual. But they married and they had children. Let's see, looking qu- quickly, how many children they had? I think there were. Four or five of them. I don't remember. I had six children. Let me interrupt and ask one thing. How important is we move – I'm being a student now and fellow mm-hmm. students. Are we to to track all these wives? Is it important to understand all these wives and the influence that they might have had or what they represent? I mean, in other words, should I be bothering to write all this down? Or Well, here's something interesting about his life as a father. He had – Muhammad's life, as we'll soon see, had two parts. Well, this is after he becomes the prophet of Allah. Sure. That is in – Mecca, he was um, uh, just married to Khadija and was very faithful. But when he went to Medina, he had the number of wives he has is unknown. Some say 11, some say 13. And he also had many sex slaves, concubines. So the importance here is, is that Islam has a dualistic religion. And by that, it always has two answers for every question. One of them is, is that living with a wife all by you, just the two, a couple, is a good thing. That's Muhammad. Monogamous. Yeah. Monogamous. What are most Muslims today in Muslim countries? Depends on how much money they have. Okay. Because now there is a rule about multiple wives. You're <laughs> supposed to be able to support them all equally. Good luck on that. I can't support my own. What a combo. <laughs> By the way, I did know a man one time who tried being married to two women at once. He said it sounds fabulous, but it drove him crazy. <laughs> two nags. Two, uh, two no, nags. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm wondering as that translates in Muslim worlds and culture, are most monogamous or most – Most are monogamous simply because you're, you, it, if, you're, if you're to support the wife – which is the concept in Islam. I mean, if you've got four wives, you need to be making some money because yeah. they all need equal clothing, equal rooms, equal food, and equal So I'm attention. just going to leave in my notes, Mecca, one wife, what we see commonly. By Medina, 11 to 13, plus sex slaves, what we see with the richer, wealthier, right. or more uh, radical. Okay, right. Now then, we need to stop and mention a word here about Mecca because this is the context of Muhammad. Mecca was a pilgrimage site. And there were six Kaabas in Arabia. Now, Kaaba is a cube. That's hence the name, Kaaba Cube. And these were pilgrimage places where people would do circumnambulations around this building. So it was a focal point. Mecca made the biggest part of its money from the religion business because what happened was there were days of the year in which you weren't supposed to attack anybody. That is, there was no raiding of caravans, and you would come to these uh, cities for pilgrimages and fairs, trade mm-hmm. fairs. So the that's part of the uh, business of Mecca. 
Muhammad's family was known to be in the religion business. That is, if you're going to have people coming as pilgrims to your place, there are people who make money off of this. And we won't go into the details of that. But anyway, he was immersed in a religious town, and he was a very religious person. So it's a religious epicenter, a marketing epicenter, a population epicenter, and mm-hmm. trade epicenter. Okay, now, by the way, there are rituals which are, were practiced in Mecca at that time which are still practiced today, throwing stones at big pillars, uh, circumambulating the Kaaba. So, Why are they throwing stones at pillars? <clears throat> oh, the pillars represent – these two pillars represent Satan. Oh, okay. So you so stone them. You stone them. So, and by the way, speaking of stones, stones were a very important part of Islamic or the not well, it became Islamic, but also part of the previous religion, in that there were many idols were worshipped. As focal point would have a stone for it. So anyway, um, and the the Kaaba had in its corner. Is that why a lot of them? I, I don't mean this glib. Is that why many of them still throw rocks in the streets versus? It's not I, that they don't have anything else. That, you and I never thought about that. Oh, okay. Life. I'm sorry. I didn't mean I mean, that. But I, they're, they're, the ritual. We of look. Work, you know, we live in a country with guns, bombs, ships, submarines. You know, and then we see them in the streets just throwing rocks, and we think. You know, I never thought about this, but yes, throwing rocks is part of the ritual. Like throwing a shoe at George W. Bush. It was a very the ultimate disrespectful thing. Right. So anyway, uh, by the way, Allah was a male god of the moon, and he had three daughters who are going to play a part in forwarding a little bit, we'll get back to this, into the satanic verses. Okay, Muhammad was a very religious man, and he would do year-long, not year-long, month-long retreats to practice the Quraysh religion. His tribal, he was of the member of the tribe of Quraysh. And then after his retreat, he would go and circumambulate, which is circle and pray, the Kaaba. Can I interrupt one second? Yeah. How different is the Quraysh religion from what, I mean, as he's putting this patch quilt together, how mm-hmm. much of Quraysh is in it? We do know the circumambulation and the throwing of stones. Uh, more than that, I really don't know. Okay. Remember, my emphasis on studying Islam is it's political, what it does to the kafir. I'm not, I don't pose to be an, as a, an expert on the religion, so okay. I'll, I'll stay that. Anyway, when he was 40, he began to have visions and hear voices. And uh, this was <clears> – Muhammad had a vision of an angel named Gabriel. She came to him with broken, or I don't know, angels don't have sex, I guess. So Gabriel came to him with a brocade, and he was commanded, he commanded to uh, Muhammad, read. And Muhammad basically says, I can't read. And so the uh, angel... Which is why a lot of people believe he was illiterate. Right. So uh, anyway, he commanded him to read, and then the angel said, recite in the name of your Lord, who created man from clots of blood. Recite, your Lord is most generous, who taught the use of pen and taught man what he didn't know. Now, after Muhammad heard these words and saw this vision, he thought he was crazy. As a matter of fact, he thought of killing himself. Then the other thing he thought was, well, maybe I've become an ecstatic poet. There was a tradition in uh, the Arabs of where you have these poets who could basically like rappers. They could make poetry up on the fly. And so he suddenly thought, oh, my word, I'm one of them. And for some reason or other, he didn't like these ecstatic poets. So his first reaction was when he was a prophet or heard the voices was like, I'm crazy. And he thought about jumping off a cliff and killing himself. So we've learned a lot. We're all the way to 40 and all the way to hearing voices, voices that he would listen to and voices that would eventually become the Quran, the life of Muhammad. It is our WTN University Masters in Divinities. The Sirah with Dr. Bill Warner continues in a moment. It's 
you don't eat your meat, you can't have any pudding. You're listening to WTN University on Super Talk 99.7 WTN. This is WTN University Masters in Divinities. The Sarah, the life of Mohammed, with our professor and headmaster, Dr. Bill Warner, and um, kind of gave you a review from our opening class, and then we moved into the life of Mohammed through being an orphan three times, to meeting his older wife, to raising his children with his wife, and then suddenly at 40, he begins to hear voices. We'll take it from there. All right. All right, so he hears voices and, uh, and also sees visions. So his, when he told his wife this, and he, he says, you know, I could be crazy, she called in her cousin who was a Christian. And it was the Christian who said to Muhammad, oh, this is the angel Gabriel, and that what you're hearing is a wonderful thing. You're now a prophet. So Christianity sort of weaves its way through this story in small places. So he has more visions, and he learns how to pray and how to do the ablutions, which is how to bathe, ritual bathing. Uh, and he starts telling others, uh, his wife becomes a Muslim. Now, the word Islam means submit. It does not mean peace. It means submit, and a Muslim is one who submits. So he, he has, he, these visions continue to show how to pray, how to bow, how to bathe. Now, when this all first started happening, the Arabs of Mecca were like, they're fine with this. Because one of the marks of a polytheistic religion is it's usually very tolerant. Sure. It's got, you got 360. They're used to having, you know. They had already had 360 gods, so now that we have one more, great. Maybe man, we'll move one over and let you bring me in. So at first there was no resistance at all to the idea of this prophecy. But now then something new added, and that was it wasn't that he was right. It's that all the others were wrong. Now, he also began to tell them that their ancestors were also burning in hell. Now, this began to create dissension. Uh, a lot of as the Arabs have a great respect for their ancestors. And so to be told that their ancestors were burning in hell is, like, upsetting. So they began to harass the Muslims, and the first blood was drawn when Muslims were on the edge of town doing their prayers, and some guys come along who are Karash. I don't know if they're Karash or not, Meccans. And they said, what are you doing? And so they told them, and then they began to harass them and mock them. And Saeed picks up the jawbone of a camel, I believe it was, and struck one of the crash and bloodied his head. This event is the first blood drawn in the name of Islam. All right, so major shift in a polytheistic culture. Ah, what's another god? On it? we got 360, what's 361? But this is the first one that comes along, and it's not just new, and it's not just what it believes. It now says everyone else is wrong, and they're burning in hell, and this eventually leads to the first bloodshed. Right. Now, the Quraysh went to his uncle, Abu Talib, and said, look, this guy's dividing the town. He's creating dissension. Why don't you uh, let us take care of him? Now, he said no, and here's what's important. He wasn't just an uncle. He was a tribal leader. So he spoke for a tribe, and he gave his protection to Muhammad, and this is part of the Arab world. He, therefore, if you harmed Muhammad, you harmed the tribe, and this would mean war. So this was the protection that he got from his uncle, Abu Talib. Now, one of the things that's very intriguing about this phase of the life is that the Quran actually records some of the conversations in being hassled. And there's one, here's uh, Surah 111. Let the hands of Abu Talib, al, I'm sorry, not Abu Talib, Al-Alahab, die and let him die. His wealth and attainment will not help him. He will be burned in hell, and his wife will carry the firewood with a palm fiber rope around her neck. 
This is one of the first descriptions of hell, and I think it's somewhat interesting in that some of the most interesting writing in the Quran is the description of hell. So this man and his wife is going to have to carry the firewood that they used to burn themselves with, which I thought was a neat little trick. His message was attractive, and more people began to join him. Now, at first, only his close friends and relatives, we, he even told him about the message. He was rather shy about this at first, which I must say that if I were suddenly hearing voices and uh, seeing visions, I would probably not be telling the world at large either. So I think this is a very human response. Sure. Now then, they begin to argue against him, and they said, look, if this is the all-going, knowing God of the universe, and he's the author of the Quran, why don't you just deliver the whole Quran in one Quran in one chunk. What's this little dribble, 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 dribble? Which I thought was a reasonable argument, like, hey, give us the whole thing at once. And they also said, can't you do miracles? And Muhammad said, well, my miracle is the Quran itself. And by the way, signs is used in the Quran, and when they say signs, a sign is a verse. So the signs of his miracles are each verse within itself. So the only miracle he ever performed were hearing these voices? Yes. Okay. Yes. Let's do an aside. I mean, I would imagine at that time, the reason they would bring up miracles is Jesus did miracles. Ah, yes. And by the way, later in the Hadith, they say there are miracles that he did. But the Quran explicitly states that he didn't do miracles. So they were like, you know, do something wondrous for us. So he continued to preach the glory of Allah and tell them that their ancestors were burning in hell, cursed their gods and disparaged them, and set one tribesman against the other. Now, there are now many gods and many people who are upset. So they said to him, says, look, if, you've got, if you're in touch with this god, we have a few questions. There's things we need done. <laughs> Our land is dry, for one. <laughs> Our land's dry. How about giving us a river? We could use a river here. And look, we're squeezed in between the mountains. Why don't you move the mountains back and give us some space? And, and by the way— Now, were they being serious or mocking? No, no, they, they, they were— Look. If, Michael, gonna, if, they, imagine, if, they got the, if they got a God in front of them, they want, you know, some, yeah, some perks. I mean, this is, I think, a reasonable response. If I tell you that I'm channeling God and you'd say, well, you are, well, how about uh, using some of this channeling power to do something, maybe some money? That was the other thing. He says, you know, why don't you make us rich? Why don't you give us uh, some space? So I thought that these were all actually rather reasonable requests. And they also had one, Kusei was their ancestor of great merit. And they said, look, we had great leaders in the past. You talked about there's going to be a day of resurrection. Why don't you resurrect Kusei now? We need some help and guidance now. But, of course, Muhammad was not able to do that. So uh, send your, yeah, this was the other thing. Send your angel to confirm you and prove us. Let us see this angel. Now, there is one story about seeing the angel that is an interesting thing. Khadija said, you think you're crazy. Let's see if this angel is real. The next time you have a vision, let me know. So Muhammad said, I see Gabriel. And Khadija said, well, sit on my left side. Do you still see him? Yes. Then she said, sit on my right side. Do you still see him? Yes. So then she took off her clothes and said, do you see him now? And Muhammad said, no. She says, ah, it is indeed an angel. Now, because this was because the angel was so modest that he wouldn't be in the room, room with a naked woman. Right. The thing that's interesting about this is I always thought of angels as being rather spiritual in nature, maybe made of light or something like that. And, uh, I mean, it struck me when I first heard the story. An angel couldn't see you were naked under those clothes anyway? Because... <laughs> no, I think the interesting part is that, you know, all these people are asking him to do things, do things. In other words, prove. Right. Uh, he had figured out or he had decided he wasn't crazy and was a prophet and this was a legitimate angel. And a, he, But he said, you know, I was sent as a messenger not to do such work. I think, I think that's very interesting that, you know, Jesus did things that came out of God's nature. 
They also fulfilled prophecies, and they also were miracles that people witnessed. I mean, people forget that, that, you know, Jesus was crucified. They saw him dead. They saw him buried. Next thing you know, they're seeing him in in the holes in his hands. There were 500 witnesses to a resurrected Christ. This all gave great validity. And so it's interesting that, you know, years after that comes Muhammad, and he patch quilts and weaves all this. But they're still kind of waiting for some of these Jesus-like miracles, to, you know, to prove. And then he's just, and boy, does he take the easy route? Oh, I'm just the messenger. Everybody's going to hell. I'm the only way in a polytheistic neighborhood. Uh, well, then do something and prove that you're. Oh no, I'm just the messenger. Eventually, you'll see they get to do everything. He doesn't have to do anything. And by the way, usually he's called the prophet, but one of the most common names for Muhammad is a messenger. Now, there's religious differences between a prophet and a messenger. And I remember I emphasized political Islam, not religious Islam, but I think that prophets are given a book. I'm edgy here, sketchy here, and messengers don't. So anyway, he's usually called the messenger of Allah, not necessarily the prophet of Allah. And I say that because most people who are not Muslims think of him as being the prophet of Allah. But unlike uh, a high priest or unlike a prophet in the Old Testament or unlike Christ who claimed to be God— uh, he's merely claiming to be a messenger. All right, we'll continue with The Life of Muhammad, WTN University, Masters in Divinities, next on WTN. Mr. Del Giorno, why don't you try keeping your eye on the professor and not Miss Freeman? She wishes. You're listening to WTN University on Super Talk 99.7 WTN. Four minutes left of class. It's 1140 or 11.51, rather, cloudy and 36 on our way to a high of 43. It's WTN University, Masters in Divinities. You don't have to be Muslim to get this. It's the life of Mohammed, the Sirah, with our professor, Bill Warner. Well, one of the uh, objections that the Meccans had to Muhammad when they said, why don't you do this or that? He said, basically, I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> and we gave a revelation that got back and what the Meccans said, look, if this is the all-powerful, all-knowing God, doesn't he know what questions we're going to be asking here and already prep you ahead of time? Why do you have to go back to him for answers? The other thing they said was, you know, we see you talking a lot with this Christian in the marketplace, this Christian slave. You seem to talk to him a lot. We think you're getting the Quran from him. <laughs> and this is one of the accusations. So one of the things that became – Muhammad was always down at the Kaaba telling people about Islam. And now then comes a major theme of Mecca, which is that if you do not believe Muhammad, you will go to hell. And he tells all these stories about what happens to other tribes and other civilizations when they didn't believe their prophet. And they were destroyed. For instance, the story of Moses turned mm. into this. The reason that Moses, the Pharaoh was destroyed was it wasn't he didn't let the people go. No, he would not admit that Moses was the prophet of Allah. So that sort of concludes our uh, first the significance. Part of it here. Uh, and again, we we just say we respect it. We think it's brilliant. Um, and by the way, may I say to the analogy, there's some people that think these patchwork quilts are some of the most gorgeous and beautiful ones, uh, and certainly the most meaningful ones. Uh, I would say it was purely brilliant for him to weave the Judea and. Judaic and Christian themes into this. Uh, his biggest problem seemed to be he's in a very polytheistic area telling everybody their relatives are burning in hell and they're going to go to hell if they don't believe in him, and he didn't have any miracles to prove he was God. Uh, that's kind of where the dilemma sits right now anyway, right? Is that well, a pretty he, good summation? It or? is indeed. And how yeah. clever was it, though, to intermingle those? Well, it worked. <laughs> we will discover as we go through this book that Muhammad was a very shrewd man. 
He was a tactical genius as well as a strategic thinker. He was truly one of the great thinkers uh, because he invented something that, as we will see at the end, he invented a new form of warfare, which is called jihad and civilizational war. You know, I like to, uh, from time to time, just bring up things I didn't know. Like, for one, I didn't know about his success as a caravan. Uh, You know, he will go on to create great success for the mission in robbing caravans. Caravans. And it never dawned on me that his expertise of how to rob caravans would come from running caravans. Oh, he knew the caravan trade. It was in his blood. (laughs) And he was really very good at it. And by the way, the little aside here, which we haven't included, is that before he became the prophet of Allah, he was a man who settled arguments. Like they took the Kaaba down to rebuild it and the black stone they needed to put in. And there was a fight over who could put the black stone in place. And they said, well, here comes Muhammad. Muhammad solved this problem. He says, ah, there were four men arguing. He says, put the stone in the middle of a blanket. Each man grab a corner, place it up there now. Now see, you've all put it in. So he used to be, he was a man of the community who solved arguments and he became a man who created arguments. And one minute left, I would just say, um, out of all of this for me, if I were a student, I'd ask the question, why did that uncle in that polytheistic area, assuming that he had one of those 360 gods, and sees his nephew hearing voices and telling everybody else disrespectfully that they're going to go to hell, why would that uncle take his side like that? Oh, the uncle reappears in the story. We're going to answer your question. Ah, as we move on towards struggles as well. It's the life of Muhammad, the Sirah. And you can't understand the Quran until you understand Muhammad. And that's why it's our first semester of WTN University's Divinity class. You will eventually be able to hear all of our classes online at politicalislam.com. It's just a matter of when Bill's daughter, I think, gets around to putting it up. Hey, I got so much to do, man. I know. And it's nice to see you outside of your bow tie. All right, I'm in for Ralph. I get no sleep next week. I'll be in for Ralph in the mornings. Pamela will be in for me. And Dan will be in for Dan next on WTN.